This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. webinar. Um, today we're going to dive in and one year on take a look at the impact of sanctions on the Russian economy. Um, just how bad have they been? It seems to depend on what you look at. Some things like cars have been a disaster. Other things like current account oil exports seem to be much less so. I'm joined, I'm excited, I'm joined by a very, very distinguished panel um, of speakers. Um, starting at the top, then there's Ivan Takachev. He's the economics editor at RBK in Moscow and is in Moscow. Um, one of, in my book, um, the very best journalists covering economics and business in Russia. Then we also have uh, Iker Kohren, who is um, the chief economist at uh, the Bank of Finland Institute for Emerging Economies, BOFIT. And if you don't subscribe, then you really should get their weekly digest, uh, covers Russia and China. It's an excellent way of keeping up on what's going on. We're also joined by Mrs. Fish, Elina Rybakova, who's the deputy the, uh, chief economist at the International Institute for Finance in Washington. And again, top commentator on uh, Russian economics. And by Alexander Isakov, um, who is now the head of uh, Russia and um, CIS economics at Bloomberg, former um, chief economist at VTB uh, Capital, who I actually haven't seen since Moscow days for many years, but um, also top, top, top uh, commentator, analyst on what's going on in the Russian economy. Um, before we get started, um, two pieces of housekeeping. Um, the, you, the guests on who are watching this by Zoom, you're welcome and invited to ask questions. Um, if you use the chat function, then we'll try and answer them as we go, um, if we can. Um, the second thing is that uh, you can see a recording of this on our YouTube channel, um, and you can find a, a link to that on bne.eu slash welcome. I also encourage you to sign up to the Editor's Picks, our daily digest by email, which is our best stories. That's free to read. Same place, bne.eu, welcome. And um, we, you should take a, a trial if you're in the game and you're really interested in the details of all these things and listen to the comments of our speakers, um, their, their own work. Then um, you should take a two-week trial to our premium service, BNE Pro, um, which again, you can find the link on the, uh, on the BNE Welcome page. So we're gonna go for an hour. We're gonna, I suggest uh, we're gonna do four, look at four different topics, starting with trade and economy, um, and then get into the whole budget um, deficit and oil and gas revenues, which is going to be the main problem for this year. Uh, can the Kremlin earn enough money in order to keep its war machine going? And then have a look specifically at sanctions, how are they working? Um, within that, there's problems with semiconductors. Um, some retail stuff has reappeared through parallel imports. Uh, and so on. And finally, take a quick look at the possibility of a continuation of the energy crisis. The gas tanks super full to bursting at the moment, but that may not last, uh, we have to see. So let's start with the economy. Um, it's, it shrank by something between 2.9, 3 3.3. 3. The EBRD just came out with a revision 3.5 contraction yesterday, um, but it didn't shrink by the 15% that everybody thought it was going to shrink at the start of the war. In fact, it seems that the sanctions have done a bit less damage than the coronavirus. 
and that Russia has been, you know, put in this sterling performance much better than anybody thought. And going forward this year, again, there's even more uncertainty. The EBRD left its uh, forecast for this year at 3% 3, 3 contraction, although the IMF stirred things up by coming out with a uh, forecast that it was actually going to grow by 0.3% this year, which is better than Germany and the UK. And in that sense, from the macro numbers, it seems like sanctions have been a failure. But of course, if you drill into it, the, looking at the sectors, there's been a lot of damage. So maybe Eka, I can kick off by turning to you. You did a nice note about um, the, the the damage that's been done to the economy. I mean, 3.5% or even <clears throat> even less uh, contraction in 2022. Uh, is that not a disaster? I mean, isn't that a pretty impressive result? Or what do you think? Uh, well, the intent of the sanctions was never to as such shrink Russia's GDP. Uh, although, as, as you said, I mean, in for example, in March 2020, well, so March 22, we forecast that GDP would shrink by 10%. Obviously, it didn't. So uh, what happened that we didn't sort of take into account? I think, first of all, the net exports were much stronger than we uh, assumed. So imports went down faster. And then especially in the first half of the year and, and also perhaps in the autumn, the energy exports were, I would say much stronger than, than most people thought. On top of that, I mean, the Russian government has been investing. And I, I think that's, that's actually a big departure from, uh, from previous crises that, for example, in, in our forecast, we were thinking that fixed capital investment would shrink. Well, it did go down in the second quarter, but after that, it seems that it has been growing quite a bit. So Russian government is investing in, in construction. And obviously, there's a lot of investment going on that is related to, 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 to war effort. So that is actually quite quite different. Can, we, uh, can I ask then, I mean, is, is this not Russia is putting its economy on a war footing and it's pouring money into arms production, you know, it's going full like long scale, long term war. And that's actually giving it a Keynesian bump um, and the, the economy is growing faster. Whereas if you look at the West, they don't seem to be investing anything and particularly not into arms productions. I mean, isn't this a big mishmash? Uh, well, I mean, the first part, yeah. I mean, Russian government is putting much more money in war production. And every piece of munition that is being launched in, in Ukraine and every piece of uh, military equipment that is being bought actually is counted as GDP. Mm. And you're right. Uh, I think in in, in West, uh, I mean, governments have been fairly reluctant and, and slow in ramping up their uh, production uh, of, of weapons and, and especially munitions. Uh, I think that might be changing, but clearly people have been sort of slower than one could have hoped. Ivan, you, you cover the Russian economy in detail. I mean, <clears throat> this investment, uh, I mean, there was things like a boom in construction, uh, that the subsidized mortgage program, the subsidies were left in place, although the central bank is increasingly unhappy about that. And things like pharmaceuticals have also been doing very well. And I think that's just import substitution that they can't import the Western yes. medicine anymore. Well, what do you think is going on there? Yes, Ben, thanks. Uh, you are absolutely correct. And pharmaceutical sector, as you mentioned, 
uh, has been one of the clear winners of this uh, unique economic crisis, uh, because uh, as far as I know from Rostat, uh, latest numbers in uh, last year, pharmaceuticals has grown uh, around 9% uh, compared to 2021. Um, and uh, uh, is, in particular, you know, the production of uh, pharmaceutical substances, so so-called from active pharmaceutical ingredients, has uh, grown almost twenty-five uh, percent last year. Uh, so this is one of the sectors which clearly benefited from those input substitution drive. But I should uh, should note that uh, you know it's a bit misleading, it's a bit delusive growth because um, pharmaceutical sector in Russia is also one of the was one of the most uh, input dependent. Mm. Uh, there, there was big dependency uh, on uh, equipment, in, uh, Western equipment for production of drugs. Uh, there was uh, a very big extent of dependency on those uh, active substances, ingredients, uh, materials, and so on. So that is why I mean that uh, this, this pharmaceuticals growth is you know centered around uh, I think uh, cheaper and less advanced drugs of course, but as for you know uh, uh, more advanced drugs, uh, there have been reports of shortages of some drugs in Russia, um, and um, um, you know that there is uh, shortages of. Uh, equipment for production lines for pharmaceuticals. But nevertheless, uh, you know, as the central central bank reported in its latest re report on so-called regional economies, uh, there has been uh, a couple of uh, major medicine production plants being constructed across Russia. Uh, so it, it's, it's a, uh, certainly it's a, one of the winner sectors mm -hmm. Um, and the thing, um, the thing with the the, the construction, because I was surprised to see that the construction's been booming, and there's actually been, you know, the central bank was worried about a, a bubble in the housing market because sort of, people were rushing exactly. to get these mortgages. Um, but that seems to have cooled down recently, um, and the, the central bank was trying to tighten things up to stop that. But the, but the government again. I think the idea with, or correct me if I'm wrong, the idea with the subsidy was to encourage this construction boom because construction is one of the three big drivers of the economy. And so that, that was sort of economic stimulus or relief, you know, in order to, to prop the economy up while it's being battered by these sanctions. Um, so, well, first of all, uh, as far as um, housing construction, yes, of course, this was, uh, uh, this has been beneficial from this uh, government's subsidized mortgage loan program, uh, but uh, it clearly has its own risks. And uh, I think one of the major risks for uh, for this year is really uh, a potential burst of this uh, price bubble at the residential uh, mar market, uh, because uh, if and when this program ends, um prices can really crash i guess so alina i mean we've been talking about some winners pharmaceuticals i mean but there's been some real losers too um the automotive sector stands out i think it was worst in july in the sector went from producing something well over a hundred thousand cars 
a month to just 3,000. Having said that, the automotive sector, which everyone pointed to as a disaster, has um, has recovered somewhat. Um, I think they're back up to about 60,000. So it's, it's well, maybe less, it's 50,000. Anyway, it's down from what it was, but it's not as bad as it was. I mean, who would you say are the winners in the, well, the, the winners in this, uh, this sector in, uh, in industry? So I think in this, um, I mean, the Chinese exporters to Russia are definitely the winners in this uh, situation. Um, the, in terms of the sort of overall picture on the, on the contraction, you know, yes, we did have the sort of the provocative more than the 10%, 15% contraction this year, which didn't happen. I think ICAS was a bit more conservative, rational 10%. Uh, why did it not happen? I do think that a big chunk of it has happened. Is uh, I'm not such a believer in the second quarter, especially big investment reported in the Russian GDP breakdown. I think there is definitely investment and there is a pickup in the war economy. And then who is the winner? In the end of the day, any factory in the world or elsewhere that is uh, focused on the military production uh, or had to retool into military production, those are the winners. Um, you know, the uniforms and the, and the missiles flying to Ukraine, that is GDP growth, uh, quote unquote, in Russia. But um, in terms of the um, GDP growth last year and even this year, I do find it hard to believe that we had a contraction of two and a half or so when Putin talked about uh, the other a few weeks ago, because the break that the, the sort of the double digit investment growth in Russia, which we know, first of all, in the best of years has never accounted for a very large share of GDP. Uh, we do know the government and state controlled enterprises usually sort of if if there is growth in this investment, it's usually these companies and the, and the budget. But also there is a lot of leakage, which uh, then, you know, is sort of wasted, is not actually genuine investment. So, so that is, uh, that is my, my concern that I think probably last year the contraction was somewhat bigger. You can look at the Sber indices, which are still published. You can look at the Beige Book surveys by the uh, central bank. I think there is also a question of messaging. I think the authorities in Russia are getting together. There is Ministry of Economy, there is Belarusov, there are others. They all talk together and they say, look, we need to have an upbeat message and we need to streamline that message. And we might get more Chinesization of the Russian reporting, which we have not seen in the past. Russian reporting actually was, as people here on this call know very well, used to be very detailed with some inaccuracies, especially from Rostat on the GDP numbers, but mm. nonetheless used to be very comprehensive. So I'm still a little confused. I think the because this contraction of whatever it is, around 3%, slightly less or more, uh, it's not that bad. Um, and although if you look at individual sectors, there were stories like there's no white paper, no print paper, because it all came from Finland and it disappeared. But it seems that actually not only has the economy survived pretty well, it remains very robust. And while there are problems, and I think Nabulana is right when she was saying, you know, guys, industry, get ready, you're going to have to go back two generations in technology in order to make this work. Like um, Ivan was saying, the, the, some high-tech drugs are now missing. And so if you have an illness um, related to one of those drugs, you, you've got a problem. But the other stuff is being replaced rapidly. To what extent is Russia being able to like, introduce this autarky? I mean, how fast can that go? I think in terms of the replacement, and also I see the comment here that uh, somebody is asking about Vladimir Milov's uh, paper on the real impact of Western sanctions. I put another uh, sort of paper there from the same outlet for Free Russia. The, the, the issue is there is a substitution. There is an import substitution. China has stepped in uh, significantly 
in terms of substituting uh, goods, as we looked specifically at the chips and, and a little bit of drones and some military equipment, in terms of substituting the goods that they used to receive from Europe and the US. Um, whether it's real substitution or whether it's rerouting some of the European goods or American goods, we do not know yet, and, and there are increasingly more studies on this. Uh, we will continue working in that direction to see if actually, you know, there are some of the, there's some anecdotal evidence, whether, for example, uh, Netherlands or German, you know, company drones, you know, via Turkey getting shipped to Russia. But, you know, we want to, to look at it at the more macroeconomic systemic way. Mm -hmm. But for now, there is, the Russia is getting access to what it needs, maybe at higher prices and maybe imperfectly, more expensively. But I think that's also what was an important part of undermining the, the effect of the sanctions. And that's why, sorry, just last one, you know, we did a lot of um, measures on the financial sector sanctions. Since 2010 onwards, the US has been very focused on that. 14 was effective and then continued in the same vein. Um, financial sanctions, sanctions, when you have overcompliance, it sort of turns into de facto trade sanctions. And then that's what helped in the beginning. But since then, you know, the trade effect has dissipated, which uh, the US and Europe are trying to do export controls. But this is a tool that I'm, they are much less familiar with, they're much less experienced in using and especially implementing and enforcing. And I think that's also part of the problem. Yeah. So, sorry, can I give just one note on input substitution? Well, of course, input substitution in Russia has produced uh, mixed results. Uh, and, you know, we know that there are theoretical models that just say that uh, input substitutions, the forced input substitution, um, it always leads to some uh, lower quality of you know, well-being because you need to divert resources to substitute lost imports, especially if we talk about investment imports, imports uh, uh, of machinery, machine tools, uh, equipment, and so on. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, recently I found a very surprising, uh, you know, thing um, there, there was a survey uh, made by, produced by Gaidar Institute uh, among Russian enterprises. And, you know, about 20% of uh, surveyed enterprises said that they continue, actually continue to bring into Russia to receive uh, sanctioned uh, equipment, machine tools, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so those Western goods. Uh, and I think this is fascinating. Uh, because it shows uh, really how porous the, uh, the sanctions regimes are, uh, the high extent of those sanctions leakage. Uh, because you know that, uh, of course, uh, Turkey has emerged as a major transit hub for re-exports of Western uh, goods and technology. Um, so... Um, Many enterprises admit uh, that they uh, has, have increased imports of those equipment from China, of course, uh, but many enterprises also say that they uh, have managed to replace those lost inputs with domestic, domestically yeah. produced. And we, we were saying from the beginning that there's going to be significant leakage. I mean, just looking at the sort of Belarusian shrimp uh, scenario, Belarus doesn't have a coast and, and when the EU agricultural imports to Russia were banned, then we would get shrimps from Belarus. But um, your point, I mean, everybody knows the Turkey story, that one's obvious, it's been widely reported, but I mean, it just, I think as it goes on, it gets worse and worse. I was just reading this morning about how Kyrgyzstan suddenly is a massive 
um, transit route that Armenia has been suddenly, the, the import of um, Western goods to Armenia has suddenly surged, that the export of, of washing machines from Central Asia and Georgia to Russia has surged. And of course, those washing machines have chips in, which end up in missiles on the battlefield. And it's going to be a game of whack-a-mole. I mean, to what extent is it even possible to enforce these sanction bans? Because there's lots of traders. I mean, we're back in the 90s scenario where we've gone from Apple doing its like our own large-scale 30 million phones imports to Russia to a whole bunch of traders who are running around, you know, we we from the from the from the 90s uh, and are doing it, you know, in job lots of 100,000 or whatever it is. Uh, and I don't think you can stop that. I mean, looking at the trade statistics, I mean, the, the imports have been lower, which has helped the current account situation massively. But talking to my friends in Moscow, I mean, Ivan, I'm sure you can confirm this, that the shops are full of all those things. Christian Dior bags are back, but they're not. Yes, uh, this is correct, uh, because there is a mechanism of parallel imports. Um, you know, many uh, uh, Western retail brands uh, have not, has not actually exit Russia. Uh, they, for example, sold their subsidiaries to local management and continue to trade those goods. Mm. Uh, and uh, actually, you can uh, buy everything uh, from, you know, iPhone to some uh, luxury apparel or footwear uh, using the help of, you know, delivery services, which openly offer such services as, uh, you know, we will bring you any product from Turkey in, I don't know. And two, the, two e the, the e-commerce here is playing a big role because I mean, people like Wildberries, Ozon, they were already building their own logistics uh, within the country and already particularly Wildberries, we're working in other countries and building logistics delivery. I mean, can't you in Moscow order an iPhone from Wildberries and then they take care of the headache of having it sent to Turkey and then from Turkey to Moscow and take care of all of that for you? And does it does it make a big difference in the price, the consumer prices? I mean, they are well, significantly. I think it, it does have uh, a difference in price, of course, because it, it naturally uh, more, more costly to import such goods and uh, there are more logistical constraints. But, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, you can easily uh, order such goods in Russia and in Moscow. Uh, actually, you know, the electronic, the online retail uh, trade sector is uh, one of the, you know, booming sectors in mm. Russia. It was up 30% last year, wasn't it? Yes, so there was recently a statistics published which said that uh, online retail trade has grown uh, around 30% last year, and it will grow another 25 to 30% this year. So such uh, providers as, you know, Wildberries, Ozon, uh, and so on, uh, feel, feel pretty well, of course. Mm. Uh, so, well, the e-commerce is then turning into a sanctions-busting thing, and actually, I think it's all entirely legal uh, if you use these intermediary countries. Um, um, Alexander, I'm glad we could see you, because I actually wanted to move on to the, the budget, um, and you've been writing about this recently, that, um, again, the budget has done extraordinarily well, that Russia put in 11 out of 12 months budget surplus, last year, although the November, October numbers were a bit of a fix because uh, they went and raided Gazprom for 
400 billion rubles, which made a difference in those funds. But then it collapsed um, by whatever it was, 3.9 trillion rubles uh, in December. And this January got off with a deficit of 1.7, which I think is the worst in more than 10 years. And, and actually, for our listeners, we're going to talk about budget in ruble terms. So um, just so you convert, 3 trillion rubles is 40 billion dollars. And that stands in comparison to the current account surplus, which was 220 billion dollars last year, which is an all-time record, and twice the year before, which itself was an all-time record. So in theory, they don't have a problem with, with, the, with the budget deficit, because that money should cover it. But before we go into that, I mean, is it really that bad? Because even a deficit in December of 3.9 trillion rubles is still less than what Russia ended 2020 with, which was 4.4 trillion rubles, if I remember correctly, as a result of the coronavirus. So that the deficit, yes, is, is bad, and it did collapse, but is it really that big a problem? Alex. Oh, can't hear you. Is your audio not working? Uh, we seem to have a technical problem. You muck around with it, see if you can fix it and just shout at us when it's working. Can I throw that question out to the others? Um, all of you have been covering Ika, Elena. I can start maybe and then... Yeah. Oh. Oika, I just unmuted him. So no, very quickly, I mean, obviously we do know the numbers, right? So we have the January number for oil and gas revenues is down 46%. They fulfilled in one month um, about two thirds of their deficit planned of 2% for this year. Um, so let's break it up. We have the oil and gas revenues are down because they're still using euros, which is a mechanical formula, right? There is extraction tax, there is export tax, it's purely mechanical, it has the formula and coefficients in there, it's linked to euros price. So I have a lot of questions to me, people asking um, where, where Russian companies, you know, report how they report to the budget. They don't report much, you know, they have to do mechanical calculation. They do have a third tax, which is sort of excess profits tax tax, which maybe people here on this call can explain to me more. But, um, you know, that is the tax, uh, as a macroeconomist, I find impossible to forecast, because it is based on the specific field, investments in that field, the, the write-offs in that field, and then they, they pay this bulky, you know, payment to the budget. But anyway, so the, because Urals is no longer really reflected the real price, we've seen the volume of purchases mm -hmm. from Europe drop down sharply. On one hand, on the other hand, it has turned into, and here, you know, the speakers, I also want to hear feedback, it has turned much more into a serving exercise. And, you know, so you call Russian traders and, and people who trade with Russia and say, what was the price of the contract? And they tell you, oh, so bad, so bad, so, so bad, so bad, 37, 37. And then it sort of gets aggregated and gets contributed to Bloomberg. And Alex, I'm sure, will explain to me that it's all wrong uh, from Bloomberg. But, um, you know, there is this effect of the discount that is merged and that is, I don't think, fully reflecting the price. And we are hoping to publish something on it next week. So then, of yeah. course, the Russian budget automatically shrinks. 
At the same time, you had January spending, which showed up completely unseasonally in January. And of course, my colleagues here wrote about it, but you have two weeks in Russia where generally people tend to drink, and then you do remember that. Then another <laughs> two weeks, you spend sort of a little bit recovering, but just like in any budget process, January is not the month where you spend a lot. So I'm really curious what is it, you know, the spending is happening there. And Alexashenko, for example, made the speculation that maybe it's a military expenditure related to this offensive. So the question is, do they go at this pace? Um, would they have been capable in the past, especially after 2014, to do dramatic fiscal adjustments when needed? So they're happy to cut everything else to the bone as long as they achieve their geopolitical and military objectives. So I wouldn't yet fully write off Russian budget as 6%, 9% deficit this year, um, or more than I've seen the more higher estimates than that, just because they're capable of removing all other spending, babushkas, dedushkas, uh, and everything else, but investing into into so, so into the security, domestic security and military spending. And I'll stop yeah. here. The um the budget deficit was uh, 3%. That was actually planned. I mean, Silyanov said in April that um, they're going to end the year with about 2% of GDP, which is about 3 trillion rubles and the budget deficit in the law for this year is supposed to be something like 3.3 however as a result of this january's results people have been talking about six trillion up to nine trillion rubles deficit but i'm hoping um sasha's fixed his audio problem uh, because i had a specific question for him that he was saying um in a tweet that oil prices were down 15 percent and that you would have expected the revenues to have fallen, um, the export revenues, but actually they stayed more or less the same. And Alina, you, you alluded to it too, is that you know this budget thing's all on the euros price, but it seems also that the euros price is becoming increasingly irrelevant, that it's not euros that's being traded anymore, that it's other blends and that uh, the whole Primorsk Rotterdam routes, the, the European routes um, is now again, being uh it's not it's not relevant anymore because the ships are going into india Sasha, can you explain and the export revenues being a lot less which again suggests that something's going on on with this whole mechanism connected to euros there you are good so, uh you, you you could hear me right i can hear no. you now yeah all right okay uh so um yeah thanks so um Kind of, uh, I was uh, pondering this question about the fiscal revenues and deficit, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, my feeling is that, so there's a lot of, uh, the system of uh, oil uh, taxation is very complex and uh, kind of um, uh, forecasting the revenues is a bit of a, like a economist competition. It's about like signaling that you really understand, as Alina said, uh, what drives uh, excess income revenue or uh, minerals extra extraction tax, et cetera, et cetera. But um, from an outside observer uh, who is like generally interested in the sanctions story, uh, I don't think it's uh, the most useful kind of indicator at all. Um, I think because Russia, like uh, for the last couple of years and currently totally places all of its debt domestically. So they all place their debt Domestically on the local market in rubles, uh, it is totally sanctioned, so there's no external investors. So the real, um, the only real constraint on the budget is uh, essentially inflation. Um, and uh, the uh, from this perspective, the most the, the more interesting story I think um, is uh, uh, what happens to inflation first, and how much uh, hard currency do they have to offset 
um, some of the shortfalls of uh, um, shortfalls of the uh, oil um, uh, oil revenue experts. Um, these are interesting things, and I think there's a variety of opinion of this. My opinion is that essentially, uh, given recent changes in the oil tax system, uh, they'll probably stop using national wealth fund to like finance deficit in the second half of the year. So, um, like. Uh, just to give you a sense of the diversity of opinion, some think that mm. uh, National Wealth Fund will run out like this year. This is an extreme kind of view, right? Like in the coming yeah. months this year. Uh, my feeling is that it's probably just not going to run out. Uh, they I mean, will. Surely, uh, the, the, I mean, I saw the Kiev School of Economics did a, a paper about this. And... Ben froze saying the, the, the liquid part is not that liquid and that they spent a hell of a lot already can you hear me yeah 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 I, I was saying that Kiev um school of economics said that it was going to run out but I mean if you look at the forecast deficit the official one is 3.3 um it's trillion uh, or rubles. Um, and then on top of that, there's all the liquidity in the banking sector. And Minfin said it's going to issue whatever it is, 3.5 trillion rubles of OFZs in order to tap that. So it seems even in the worst case, 9 trillion ruble deficit, there's cash enough to cover that. And if things go back to quote unquote normal, there's money in the in the various funds to cover at least three years worth. So, I mean, the budget actually, the deficit's not really a problem. I mean, it's going to be possible to finance it fairly easily, isn't it? Yeah, I think that uh, the, uh, so um, kind of, um, I believe that the budget is will not be a pain point. Uh, my feeling is kind of uh, there with Elena's view, uh, totally aligned, but my feeling is that they will not cut, like I, my optimism comes not from the fact that I believe that they will be cutting spending, um, and social spending, et cetera, et cetera. I kind of don't see that uh, coming. But I think that the ability to fund deficit is there because it's all in the local currency. Mm. Can I throw a question out to everyone? Because part of this, um, they changed the rules about the, um, the, budget, uh, the, the budget rule. And it used to be that if oil, all revenues above $42 oil, went into the funds to replenish it but that that's where all that money comes from but as i understand it they've just introduced a new rule where they're looking directly at the oil and gas revenue going into the budget and using that to decide whether the there's excess uh, revenues that can go to replenish the, the the national welfare fund and on top of that um in russia earned 226 billion dollars that's almost all of the 300 billion that got frozen of the cbr's reserves um but it doesn't seem like they can spend that money i mean doesn't isn't russia swimming in cash isn't this thing with a budget deficit completely unimportant because they've got money coming out there it is Ika, maybe you can have a crack at that the budget rule uh well uh, so it's actually swimming cash and um, I, I do think the the authorities are also worried about Sort of not just what happens this this month and this quarter, but also the sort of outlook for the rest of the year and also beyond. Because also you know, households and companies are sort of forward-looking. That if it looks like, say, a sort of welfare fund um, or liquid part runs out, even sometime in 24 
or mostly runs out, then the, the natural question is, you know, if the war goes on at that point, then uh, maybe what is the deficit and how it's going to be uh, financed? And then the, if the answer is that it, it will be financed by domestic borrowing, then the, of course, the natural question is that, you know, at what, what point does this domestic borrowing become inflationary? And this was a point raised earlier. That, that's, that is the real constraint on, even if you're able to borrow in foreign, uh, sorry, in domestic currency, and of course, ultimately the central bank is there, there for you, then the, the fact is that uh, then you have to worry about the inflation and especially inflationary expectations. And this oil money, this 220 that came in last year, can't they spend that? Isn't that money that can be used and converted? Uh can I comment on this? Please, please. I think this is uh, just one of the misconceptions because um, like externally, um, I think uh, we try, tend to believe that uh, current account surplus is like uh, just a show of strength and actually that they've achieved current account uh, surplus at historic high uh, despite sanctions. Actually, this is not despite, uh, but because of sanctions. Mm -hmm. um, my thing is that the domestic uh, sentiment is that uh, the in the kind of under new conditions, current account should be zero. Uh, it should be balanced um, because if you are, because essentially what current account does, it uh, leads to accumulation of uh, uh, claim, like uh, foreign claims, like claims on, on the world, uh, which make you essentially vulnerable, right? So mm. um, the story here is that, um, as you said, um, uh, uh, Ben, um, can they actually use the current account surplus accumulated last year? Definitely not, right? Because it has been used up either to uh, pay for the debt redemptions or it was accumulated like by the private sector somewhere else. And the uh, government has probably does, maybe has some kind of control over it, but probably uh, most of it is just out of the government's control. So um, the uh, current account surplus is actually the result of um, what they, th I think what they think is insufficient domestic uh, demand or inability to get sufficient imports uh, for the exports they've done. Right. A another related question, uh, again, I throw it out there, is that um, the central bank has already sold off all its dollar assets. So there's virtually no dollars uh, in the reserves apart from those dollars that are stuck in the States. Um, but I just read a piece that they're now going to get rid of the euro this year and that they've started the whole mechanism with the budget rule is, is gone to, to one is that they're using the Chinese currency and that by the end of this year, they expect 60, 40 gold and one as the reserves. Um, and that's because the one they can spend uh, via China or, or am I misunderstanding that? And is it going to make any difference or what difference is it going to make if Russia continues this oneization? I think Lena called it Wimbyization of its economy. Elena, maybe you can crack at that. Well, we've seen the data on the domestic trading of um, of uh, yuan, you know, increased. I think it's more than thirty percent on the over the counter in the MySex. But um, the issue is, it's not a flexible currency, right? It has its own issues. If we, those of us who look at the mirror statistics for Russia or the Russian statistics, China's trade data is horrendous. You know, so the the 
So our understanding of how much they intervene on the market, what is exactly happening on it? And Nico, you know, is shaking his head here because he spent a lot of time looking at it. We're back to the 90s. In that sense, some of our forecasts were not completely off. And again, some people mm. here remember, you know, the over-invoicing, under-invoicing, and the cooking on the export-import side so that the capital account is completely obfuscated. China is doing it more and more and has been increasingly so. So um, we do not know what's happening with the currency in terms of the central bank interventions. We know that it's not a, a, um, a sort of open capital account currency. We know that there is no enough liquidity in the market. So before all this war, when China was trying to lure uh, foreign reserve managers, including Russia, uh, into investing into the uh, domestic bonds, is that most people walked away and said, no, 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 it's not liquid enough. Even for our, even mm -hmm. if our geopolitical objectives, it's tricky. And the Russian central bank tried to sort of was like a cat through the window pushed into this Chinese currency. So for Russian broader business and population, it, it is hard to switch to something that is not, uh, that it's, is not it's, liquid. It's going on though. I mean, there were like one bank offered one account started this year. And last I read uh, in Abakar, I think, um, there's now 20 and people are actively it doing it. We should let Ika jump in here because yes, um, he covers... We did have mortgages in Swiss franc at some point in mm. uh, in Hungary, right? Look how well that turned out. Mm. Oh, no, I'm I'm complete agreement with with Elena that the I mean yuan is not it's not a freely tradable currency. Uh, of course, one can have assets in in yuan, but the more assets you have, the actually more locked up you are in in the in the market. And, uh, it's uh, it's always difficult to, to move out of the market. I mean, partially because of the restrictions and partially because the market is not as liquid as even the, even the euro euro area government. Is it is it realistic that the Russia central bank seems to be intending to switch all of its reserves, its hard currency reserves, you know, the, the foundation into one and gold? Does, I mean, isn't that a very risky thing well, to do? It is risky, but of course, at that at this point, if they want to accumulate reserves, then they don't have too many options. And I would also say that the if you have gold and it's actually inside your own country, then it's sort of, uh, I guess, semantics if it's international reserves or not. I mean, who are you able to sell it and at what price? Mm. I mean, most central can, can banks it? will have their gold reserves in New York and London and Zurich, just for, I mean, basically, if you if you need to sell it, then they will just take it from one uh, place in the, in the in the world to another place and the money will be credited to your account. Mm. But now Russia is unable to do that. Germany actually flew all its gold back from the US. Well, I mean, yeah, well, don't, don't, yeah, I mean, that was just part of Certain certain part of German population has very strange ideas about money and and yes. gold. And so tell me, <laughs> someone wanted to jump in there. Well, um, we're going actually a can bit longer. Um, can we move on to to sanctions? Um, so my question is, do they work? Um, and the India-China thing. I mean, maybe this is a question for Ivan, uh, but the two million barrels a day that, of crude that used to go to to um, to Europe has almost completely been absorbed by India, China. I think it's actually absorbed it more. And moreover, I was just looking in this um, report that Lena posted, um, also very good, I, I recommend, uh, for even Russia, 
but the um the discounts on india price is actually zero or at least it was in november and i was just reading deputy foreign minister saying that it's still zero and that the the crude exports the december 5th exports have not worked in so much as they can send it all now the products the oil products um that's just come in february 5th that's a bit different uh that looks like it's going to be more difficult for for russia to um be able to actually find enough customers to take on all of that Ivan, I mean, what's, what's your take on this? Because it looks like this, I mean, I asked because we, this is why the relevance of euros, we're talking about the euro discount at Primorsk, which is Primorsk Rotterdam, but now it's all going to India, China, and they're not paying discounts. And so actually, this is one of the reasons why the budget deficit looks like such a big problem, but probably in reality, it's not. Um, yes, Ben, first of all, I think that you are correct saying that genuine discounts uh, of Russian euros oil that are being sold to India are not so big as uh, presumably implied by you know official data on euros price. So I think that according to Indian uh, customs data, um, actually you know the average import price for Russian oil was around I think eighty dollars uh, per barrel right. last last year. So actually, there were no discounts, and uh, you know, many some independent observers say that uh, Russian oil is currently being sold to India at you know seventy to seventy-five dollars per barrel. And as for China, there is too uh, not a very large discount. For example, uh, I saw data from uh, China customs authorities. According to this data, uh, in December, I think uh, last year. Uh, Russian oil was being sold to China at a uh, probably 9% discount to Saudi, Saudi Arabian oil. So uh, it's uh, well quite sizable discount, but not you know 15 to 17% discount to Saudi oil, which mm. was reported back in you know spring and in summer. So and as for uh, this uh, you know rejiggering of trade uh, and sanctions regime, uh, you know, there is a very important point that uh, one of the exceptions from the sanctions regime that European Union has provided is that they uh, mm, cannot import Russian crude oil and Russian petroleum products directly, but they uh, uh, are allowed to uh, purchase uh, petroleum products made from Russia crude oil in third countries. Uh, but this also... is crazy. This is crazy because I mean, what you've done is is you've taken the short trip from Primorsk to Rotterdam, yeah, where yep. it could be refined, and now you see. I mean, the the imports of Senegal in West Africa, which has just invested in a huge refinery, now they're they're exporting to Senegal diesel yep. as well, and Senegal is going to take its own diesel fill an oil tank just slightly more than half full yes. mix it with the russian and then send it back to europe but who's going to pay for all that transport it's going to be so, the end I mean, indirect, indirectly european union continues to import russian petroleum products you know recycled for in, in third countries processed in third countries uh, also you know there is issue of uh blending blends yeah, yeah. Uh, and ship to ship russian uh, petroleum and non-Russian petroleum, which are uh, 
can be imported into European Union too, and which uh, are not subject to G7 price cap. So actually, uh, I researched some statistics, and you know, even before this embargo and these price caps uh, come into effect, European Union has substantially uh, um, increased its imports of petroleum products from such countries as Turkey, India, and China. So we should, mm -hmm. we should assume that partially it is, you know, Russian crude oil processed in those countries. Uh, to play devil's advocate, and again, I throw this out to anyone who, who wants to comment, um, isn't the embargo, it's not an embargo. The, all it is, is a massive distortion into what was a super efficient market whereby you're just making these products travel long ways so they can be rebranded before they come back and meet. Because the whole point was to keep um, the oil flowing so that there wasn't a shortage in the EU in particular. America's self-sufficient, so it doesn't really get involved in this. And that all you've done is you've just introduced these massive uh, distortions. And so it ends up the European consumer of, of this fuel is just playing a surcharge, a sort of sanctioned surcharge for this. Or, or is it really going to make a difference because again we come back to the issue of the budget the whole idea of these price cap was to starve Russia of money to the budget so they can't pay for its war machine but I don't see that happening or at least I'm not sure it's happening who wants to go? that's the whole point I mean the and and actually uh, when the G7 price cap was discussed I mean the US authorities were very clear that they don't want to see the price of oil i mean international price of oil going up at least not before midterms i mean this this is pub public knowledge so there, there, there clearly was an incentive uh, to come up with a scheme that ensures that the physical flow of, of russian crude oil to the market continues and uh, that's more or less what has happened uh, i don't know if that will continue or not but um, more or less the that part of the sanctions uh, regime uh, has uh, has worked and i mean looking at at all revenues tax revenues from energy sector even also in december and taking out the the extra tax on gasprom i mean the tax revenue has really been going down year on year mm. so if that those numbers are correct the other part of that that part of sanctions regime uh, trying to push down the tax revenue of Russian Federation is working as well. For how long? Well, let's see. But so far, it seems to be working. And what about the um, the products? I, I think the exports of that and it's much more widely distributed. Uh, Alexander, if you're still there, the Bloomberg did a nice piece about um, the ghost fleet and that this is not sanctioned, um, that the, these Russian-owned ships, they've got like more than 100 now, can be uh, taken anywhere and they um, they can sell the products whatever they want and they can be tasked to carry the, the products as well, uh, the refined products. Have we lost Sasha? I think we have, haven't we? Uh, no, I'm here, no? I'm here. Okay. Yeah, um, as I say, so Bloomberg to go into it. I mean, there's, I, I saw a calculation that you'd need like 230 ships to carry the production and Russia's only got about 40. So yeah. um, this is not going to work. And this is part of the reason why um, they announced the production cut, 500 million barrels a day um, earlier this week. Please. Yeah, yeah, you're correct, Ben. 
So our story is basically that, uh, so we've looked at the number of ships, um, but we also looked uh, essentially into the rationality of the output cut. So uh, crude oil output cut, cut is only rational if it uh, kind of generates net gains in export revenues for Russia, right? So for example, you cut 5% of your exports and the oil prices increase by 6%, then you are the winner. You gain more export revenues. Um, it didn't happen. Uh, actually, uh, the uh, response in the oil prices up to this point is half of what Russia needs to break even for its oil output cut. But just to add to the uh, kind of efficiency of sanctions debate, my feeling is that so you should split into like the role of sanctions as a punishment and uh, as a deterrence. Um, I think in terms of punishment, we all understand that the kind of empirical evidence is kind of weak on this front, but uh, the deterrence effect is probably why we are seeing kind of persistent applications of sanctions and what's kind of happening with Russia. Um, and I think the deterrence effect like is rather huge, right? So in an alternative world without sanctions, we probably would see a very different behavior of very large number of other countries. So like, I think that's the, the, kind of okay. the potential outcome. So we're coming towards the end now, and I um, intended to talk about this a bit longer, but um, quickly dive in that the IEA said that this year there's going to be a $40 billion, uh, sorry, 40 billion cubic meter deficit of gas because <laughs> normally um, Russia used to send about 150 BCM to Europe. And then in last year, it managed to send 60 BCM until the pipes were blown up in September. Uh, and this year, there's going to be no gas, in effect, coming through. Well, none through Nord Stream, and there's a bit coming through um, through Ukraine, but that's reduced. And there's a bit going through Turk Stream, but Turkey takes a lot of that. Um, to what extent, despite the fact that the tanks are full to bursting, record levels, um, what extent could we have a repeat of the gas crisis? Because the tanks only hold enough for a month or two. So even if we go into the, 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 the spring with, with full tanks and we're able to refill them, that we're not actually able to refill them, uh, it's not clear. And if it's a cold winter next year, we're going to have the same spiking of prices in August when that becomes clear. Are we facing another energy crisis? I mean, clearly, is it going to be, I think it could be, well, I don't know, is it going to be worse or, or this missing 40 BCM, is that a big problem? No one knows. Ika, go on, you're shaking your head. <laughs> no, I, if, if I had to make a guess, or I, actually I'm willing to bet money that we, we won't. Mm. I think the, the uh, I mean, warm or mild, mild winter helped. But if you look at German or actually European industrial production, apart from fertilizers and so on, I mean, there's been tremendous amount of, uh, of adaptation and uh, companies have been able to sort of use different uh, processes, different raw materials with no visible effect on, on their output. And I think this is one of the sort of big lessons from, the, from last year. Uh, obviously, if the, if the winter would be very, very harsh, and there would be some disruptions to LNG flows from other parts of the world, then 
we could face uh, again very high energy prices. But in the meanwhile, I mean, as we have seen, a lot of countries have now invested a lot in in different uh, different energy sources, uh, in, well, including my, my own. I mean, the, yes. We simply, simply with one LNG floating LNG terminal, if the flow of LNG continues as it's now foreseen. Well, that's a key question because uh, last year we actually had a, a run of good luck. The, the winter, the weather was very mild, and China's lockdown, its COVID shutdown policy meant that they uh, there was a lot of spare LNG that they weren't using. But now that's stopped, and China's bouncing back, and that LNG is going to go off the market. And going into the fight, I read that there isn't actually enough LNG to meet both to replace the European gas that was going into Europe and meet Asia's demand, particularly if the Chinese economy is doing well. So uh, Ika, I mean, as an expert on China, is the Chinese economy recovering and is it going to take all that gas off the market? It is recovering, but actually the parts that are recovering are especially domestic services that don't use, they don't use much energy, they don't use our machinery, they don't use too much raw, raw materials from other parts of the world. We have actually done some work now on, on trying to figure out what happens to China's foreign trade with the some re sort of shuffling of demand from uh, manufacturing and investment into domestic consumption, and especially services. And it very well might, might be that the, the overall demand for uh, raw materials from the rest of the world doesn't grow that much or it might actually decline especially if they continue to push or enforce the, the rules on uh, sort of real estate investment and so on that's been the big part mm. of the of the china's growth in the past three years alex i mean bloomberg covers uh, commodities in detail i mean surely there's a view on this of whether there's going to be fuel um, people have been gaming it out uh, i must say that my feeling my you know gut feeling is that given the tanks are full and the weather has been so good and that europe has actually proven to be extremely efficient extremely is capable i mean it's really dealt with this energy crisis well by investing into renewables and making reductions in efficiency i don't know does bloomberg have a view on this um, I don't think we have a strong view on the uh, natural gas prices at this time aware of. Uh, we have a pretty strong view on the uh, uh, crude oil prices. And uh, basically the view boils down to the fact that uh, the key thing here is uh, monetary policy. And if we are kind of past the peak of uh, uh, Fed funds rates, uh, then we should see uh, like 90 upwards uh, oil price this year. So uh, oil prices should be higher, even kind of... Uh, despite the China story, just simply, if you look at the uh, oil price historically, they are totally a function of the Fed funds rate. Mm. So look, we're almost out of time. As a last question, I mean, last year was a bit of a nightmare. Europe spent 800 billion euros on bailing itself out. Uh, I think we're sort of more in the groove now. Um, people are better prepared. Some of that investment's coming online. What's the outlook for this year? Um, is the worst past us? I mean, we just, going to have another painful year but slowly get back to normal Elena you haven't said anything for a while uh what's your just very briefly the last few minutes uh, what, what do you think the outlook for the year is well the outlook I think we're going to be stuck in this uh, sort of whack-a-mole of the export controls uh, by the U.S. and Europe if they are to take the war seriously 
Um, so I think that's what we will be experts in from, uh, you know, financial sector sanctions will move into the export control sanctions because that's the only chance. Mm -hmm. I don't see Europe coming back to Russian gas and commodities in the same scale we've seen historically, even if the war were to end tomorrow. I think that has that train has left the station. Ivan, mm -hmm. what do you think? I'm um, sorry, Ben. Um... I was saying, I mean, you're, you're sitting in Moscow. I mean, what do you think the outlook for Russia is uh, for this year? I mean, is it going to be muddled through or is it relatively comfortable with some pain? How do you think it's going to No, You out? mean the overall outlook? Correct? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, uh, frankly speaking, I think that, uh, you know, all the risks are pretty manageable for Russian economy this year. Um, you know, there are factors that support its growth such as, for example, many Western businesses actually stay or selling their subsidiaries to local management, which helps them, you know, to continue their business. Um, of course, the, the main theme of the year, of this year, would be normalization of current account surpluses uh, with imports recovering. I, I think in January, we imports actually return to growth in dollar terms uh, year on year. Um, uh, actually, I, I think that we'll, in the worst case, we will see, you know, a decline of GDP at around 1.5%, uh, no more than that, I, I guess. Um, so it would be like, you know, uh, a, an ongoing stagnation rather than, you know, some right. catastrophic scenarios. Ilka, um, what about your outlook? And if you could comment on the outlook for Europe, because, I mean, we've got Germany are stagnant, we've got UK in recession, we've got everyone else like below 1% growth. Um, how do you see this year playing out for Europe in particular? For Europe? Well, uh, for, if I'm going to sort of start from the uh, official institutional view that in December, the ECB had a forecast of 0.5% GDP growth for Euro area this year. I think uh, most likely there will be some revision to that that forecast. And for the reasons that we have thought, talked before, I think the, the, the most pessimistic scenarios didn't materialize. Mm. And many countries uh, have actually sort of rode out the, the crisis reasonably well. So then it much actually depends on the, on the global economy and uh, say how, how the US sort of bounces back uh, from the growth, if they have had a growth slowdown. Okay. So in, and, in that sense, that yeah, just, I, I think, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just, I just want to add very quickly that, you know, despite what I said that, you know, the economic risks are quite manageable. I think that what, what we should know, uh, underline is that, you know, we have a, a, a very high level of uncertainty in Russia currently yeah. concerning economic policy, concerning tax policy, uh, concerning, uh, you know, uh, foreign trade developments. I think that we have not seen such level of uncertainty, I think maybe since, I don't know, a, a, uh, 1998 crisis or so. Mm. So this is a very important factor, I, I think. Uh, this level of uncertainty. Yeah, no, it's it's insane. Um, Alexander, if I could ask you to close out, I mean, for you to rephrase the question slightly, what do you see as the biggest risks, the biggest risk factors for this year where things could go wrong? What worries you the most? Uh, 
the uh, biggest risk for Russia, Europe, uh, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, comes yeah. from the war in Ukraine, right? So uh, like what will, uh, like the, the, the war is the key story here. I'm not sure that uh, like the deficit uh, of one, two, four or five trillion will actually like, matter. We are trying to understand what will happen in the next six, seven months. And this is the key story. Yeah, we have a fighting season. I'm convinced the Ukrainians are bloody minded about this. They're not giving up now. They've passed the point of no return and they will keep going. Um, so everything depends on how this season goes because Putin doesn't. I mean, the talks of peace that there have been, they're not real talks. Both sides are so far apart that I, I don't see any chance of a negotiated settlement unless something forces it. Um, but I don't see anything on that. Look, guys, uh, my panelists, uh, we've lost Alina. I think she had to leave, but Ika, Ivan, Alex, uh, thank you so much for joining me. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, wish we had more time. There's still a lot more to talk about. And for all of you out there at home, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, as I say, we will upload this, um, well, it automatically be uploaded to our YouTube channel as soon as we uh, finish here. You can find links to get an email alert for when we release these things um, at bne.eu slash welcome. Also there you can find a, um, uh, a link to try our pro service where we go into all this stuff uh, in detail every day. Um, and I recommend you sign up for Editor's Picks, which is a nice short uh, email digest, comes out once a day with the best stories from our sites from across the region. So once again, thank you very much for the panelists. Fascinating discussion. And I hope to see everyone again next time. All the best from me, Ben Aris. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Yeah. Bye.